Good morning. I am uh, Tom Olive, and uh, just before I begin, you're going to have to bear with me one second here. Hey, Tunde, wave. All right, got it. Thanks. I have a mom who is never going to believe this without some evidence. It is my incredible honor to uh, serve in this church as one of the elders, uh, where I get to serve on a board with some really amazing men, and what I think is a pretty amazing church in a pretty amazing city. By way of personal introduction, I am the son of a four foot eleven Japanese woman named Aiko Yokoyama from Yokohama, Japan. You couldn't make that up. Uh, <laughs> And a six foot three Scottish redneck from East Texas. <laughs> to add to my personal genetic weirdness, I was raised as a small boy on the bayous of Cajun country in a small town called New Iberia, about two hours west of New Orleans. You gotta be kidding. We'll talk. <laughs> my upbringing was unique and often confusing. I grew up eating collard greens and sushi, sometimes together. I grew up eating crawfish, etouffee, jambalaya, and ramen noodle bowls long before any of that stuff was cool. On the bayou, you were taught that the colors purple, green, and gold look good together. You were taught on the bayou that people will do absolutely incredible things for necklaces made of cheap plastic beads. On the bayou, there are four seasons. There's shrimp, crab, oyster, and Mardi Gras. And on the bayou, you are taught to eat anything that doesn't eat you first. And I will tell you, none of that prepared me for living in South Florida. We grew up in a middle-class neighborhood and lived on a corner lot. And catty corner from our house was a park. And I use that term kind of loosely because it was really just a city block of land that they kept mowed. And it had the remnants of a baseball field and a swing set. And as sketchy as that little park was, it was the cultural center of my childhood. In this park, epic football games were played. And in this park, we built these elaborate ramps out of plywood and jumped our bicycles off of them. And it was in this park that I probably learned as much about how a society works, both good and bad, as I learned anywhere else. Down the street from us was the Simonello family, home to the undisputed three toughest, meanest boys in the entire neighborhood. I remember one particular Saturday, it seemed like every kid in the neighborhood was in the park. And on this particular Saturday, for a reason that I can't remember this morning, and there probably wasn't a reason, Mark Simonello, the middle of those three boys, and by far the meanest of those three boys, decided that he and I needed to fight. At the time, I was an undersized third grader. My parents had thought it would be a good idea to start me in school a year early at the age of five. At this moment, it was one of their worst ideas. Mark was in the fourth grade, he was a head taller than me, and I was sure that Mark had been held back at least once, and I was equally sure that Mark was already shaving. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I had no intentions of fighting Mark Simonello on this or any other day. And I did what any intelligent, undersized, and fast third grader would do. I cut and ran. I knew if I could get out of that park, if I could get across the street, if I could make it across my yard, if I could get inside that screen door, I would find safety. And I also knew that inside that screen door was my six foot three redneck dad from Texas. I often think today of our church in the same way that I thought of the home of my childhood. The church is where I run to and where I find respite from a world that, frankly, I understand less and less, from a world that seems to me to grow more and more violent. Inside the church, I find peace. I find sanctity. I find people like me. I find people who love Jesus. And as we saw last week, I find good friends. And the church should always be an integral and an important part of our Christian life. But today, we want to shift our focus, and we want to start looking at the city outside of our church. And for the balance of the morning, when I use the term city, I'm not talking about the narrow city of Fort Lauderdale as much as I am the broader city, sometimes the city of Broward County and sometimes even all of southeast Florida, but it's the city that surrounds us. And so what I would like to do this morning is is jump into some uncharted territory and actually cover four points this morning. I would like to introduce you to your city. I would like for us to look at how the church historically has and how it is trying to reach the city. I would like to see how Jesus reached his city. And then finally, I would like to close with perhaps a new perspective for you on our city, our church, and ourselves. Okay, we know where we're going. We've got a lot to cover. I will never try and put as much into a sermon as Sam Smith does. <clears throat> but we do have a lot of real estate to cover, so hang on, all right? If you're anything like me, my guess is if you've been raised in a community for any period of time, and I know a lot of you grew up here in southeast Florida and some of you right here in Fort Lauderdale, my guess is you rarely get the opportunity to kind of look at your city through the eyes of an outsider. And so what I would like to do today is I would like for everybody to pile on one of those double-decker red buses, and I would like to play tour guide, and I would like to introduce you to your city. To begin with, Your city is a chamber of commerce, beautiful place to live. The year-round temperature in your city is 77 degrees. The average temperature in February here is 74. And to put that in perspective, the average temperature in Buffalo, New York, for the month of February is 31 degrees. The average is literally below freezing for the entire month. Your city has 23 miles of beautiful Atlantic Ocean coastline, and 300 miles of canal, giving it the name of the Venice of America. Your city is a very international city, and this past year, the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport actually surpassed the Philadelphia International Airport to become the 17th busiest airport in the United States. Today, 80,000 passengers a day are going through your, your airport. 32 million passengers a year. Today, you can actually get a direct flight from Fort Lauderdale to London, to Paris, to Munich, to Stockholm, and to even Dubai. You live in a big city. And if we think about our city as being the tri-county area, Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade, the combined population of our city 
would actually be larger than the countries of Kuwait, Finland, Denmark, Norway, New Zealand, and even Ireland. In fact, our city would be larger than 120 countries of the world. And our city is not getting smaller. In fact, population projections say that if just you're looking at just Dade and Broward County, we should expect 150,000 new residents every single year for the next decade. That means that tonight when we go to bed, there will be 400 more people living in our city than there were when we woke up this morning. And Monday there will be 400 more, and Tuesday there will be 400 more, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the next 10 years. And if you want to know why they're coming, I'll refer you back to that slide about Buffalo in February. If you really want to get blown away, consider this. Of the 1.8 million people that live here in Broward County today, 33% of them weren't born in the United States. One-third of our population was not born in the United States. And if you look at Broward and Dade combined as our city, that number rises to over 50%. Over half of the residents of Broward and Dade were not born in the United States. Our city is a great place to do business. It is the corporate home for AutoNation, for Brandsmart, for Burger King, for Carnival Cruise Lines, Citrix, DHL, Spirit Airlines, just to name a few. You guys advance it. In a recent survey of Floridians... This blew me away. Of the 10 most desirable communities to live in, Floridians said six of them were right here in Broward County. Deerfield Beach, Pompano, Davie, Weston, Coconut Creek, and Coral Springs. And in a recent U.S. News and World Report survey, 12 of the top 100 high schools in the state of Florida were right here in Broward County. And that's in meaningful measures like high school graduation rates and college readiness. In Fort Lauderdale High, our partner high school was one of those 12. But we all also know that you don't have to scratch very hard below the surface to find a very, very different city. 11% of the residents of our city today live at or below the poverty level. And if you narrow that down to families with children, that number jumps up to 16%. And if you look at single moms with children, that number rises to 31%. So nearly one-third of the single mothers with children in our city are living at or below the poverty level. And we use that term poverty level kind of loosely. I'm not sure we really appreciate what it means. And so I grabbed the 2018 Federal Guidelines for Poverty, and I highlighted a family of four I just want you to try and get your head around this for a second. If you are trying to make ends meet for a family of four, that means you're providing housing and food and education and transportation and medicine on $2,090 a month. Every two hours in our city, someone overdoses from drugs. Every day in our city, almost 10 people die from drug-related causes. 
38% of all of the births in our city are to single mothers. 4% of all of the births in our city are to teenagers. Every year in our city, 220 people become so isolated and lost that they take their own lives. And one every month of those is under 21 years of age. In our city, we record on average about 106,000 cases of sexually transmitted disease a year. That number is 20% higher than the statewide average. That number is 40% higher than the national average. 41 out of every 100,000 residents in our city has AIDS. And that is a rate that is twice as high, 100% higher than the city of New York or the city of Los Angeles. We live in a beautiful, vibrant, international community that is also broken and in desperate need of redemption, restoration, and Jesus. And so it begs the question, what has the church and what is the church doing to try and reach that city? Well, to answer that question, we need to step back into church history a little bit, and, and don't, don't, don't let me lose you. We're not going to stay here long, okay? But we need to understand a little bit about where we came from to kind of appreciate better where we are. From the middle of the first century all the way through the 19th, and I would argue well into the 20th century, the church was the primary driver of culture. And that's kind of hard for us to get our head around, but the church was the primary driver of culture. From the church sprang iconic works of art from religious artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Raphael. From the church came scores of classical sacred music from composers like Bach and Beethoven and Mendelssohn and Vivaldi. And these guys were like the rock stars of their day. Through the church's cathedrals, we get some of the greatest works of Western architecture. From the church was provided health care. From the church was provided social service. The church was the primary driver of all culture for nearly 1,600 years. But I would suggest to you today that that environment, that landscape has changed significantly. You want to advance that one for me? And today, culture is significantly more influenced by government. Education has become secularized, and even those higher education universities of Europe and early America that were formed by the church are aggressively trying to distance themselves from their Christian heritage. Healthcare is certainly provided from outside of the church. Social services are provided by independent not-for-profit organizations. Art, music, and literature are certainly being driven from outside of the church. And with the advent of more leisure time, we see sports, television, and now even social media, all vying for people's time, their attention, and their passion. And it leaves the church trying to figure out how to have any influence at all on culture anymore. How, frankly, to be relevant. And so what has the church done over this period of time? Well, the primary strategy of the church has been to try and make its content more compelling. And by that, I mean it's tried to take the ministries of the church and it's tried to gift wrap them and put better bow and more color and more sizzle in order to be able to attract the world inside of its four walls, 
in this competitive, competitive landscape. And I would say that as culture begins to move further and further away from truth, that's a dangerous and an often slippery slope strategy because we all know of churches who in their pursuit of relevance have lost their grip on the gospel. Who in their pursuit of influence on culture have lost their grip on truth and on scripture. And so it leaves us with a question of how can the church in this environment continue to be relevant and impactful? Well, to answer that question and most every other question in your life, I would suggest that we turn to God's Word. And the first thing that we want to do is we want to take a deeper dive and look at the life of Christ. How did Jesus live His life, and how was He relevant, influential, and impactful on His city? Well, if you look at the life of Christ, the first thing that you'll see is Jesus spent time in prayer. Jesus prayed for others, Jesus prayed with others, and Jesus prayed alone. In Matthew 19, we see, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. In John, the passage we just looked at last week, Jesus, praying to his Father on behalf of the disciples, says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus spent time praying for others. In Luke, we see Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Jesus spent time praying with his church community. And then finally in Luke, we see, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And I love this passage because it shows us that even the God-man looked for solitude for his personal prayer life. And it also shows that he did it often. This was a regular part of Christ's life practice. And so one of the things that we see when we first look at the life of Christ is that one of the fundamental pillars of his life was prayer. Secondly, when you look at the life of Christ, you see that he spent time grounded in the community of the church. The gospel tells us at least on 10 specific occasions that Jesus was doing his ministry from inside the synagogue. It also tells us that he went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues. And the synagogue of the day, remember, was kind of the cultural hub of things. So inside the synagogue, education was happening. Debate over the interpretation of the Torah or scripture was occurring. Social services were being provided from the the sanctuary. And Jesus Christ was a part of that life. He was an embedded part of that culture. And in fact, in Luke, there's a period of Christ's life when it says that he actually was in the sanctuary every single day. And lastly, where did Jesus spend his time? Well, it's no surprise to you that Jesus spent his time out. And he spent time in his city. And we ask, why was he out there? Well, not to be master of the obvious or anything, but he was out there because they weren't in here. Jesus had a ministry to the unchurched, to the marginalized, to the sinners. And so he had to go where they were, and he left the sanctuary and went into the city where they lived, where they worked. Jesus met their physical needs. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He fed the hungry. But he was also eating where they ate. He was spending time with them in their homes. He was being the consistent Christ to them 
pointing out for them their eternal need for repentance and redemption. In Mark, we see that Jesus himself says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus spent so much time in his city with the unchurched, with the sinners, that the religious leaders of the day actually called him a friend of sinners. As we saw last week, what does it take to be somebody's friend? Well, it takes time. It takes quality time. And Jesus spent quality time out in his city with the unchurched, with the sinners, because that's where they were. There was a recent article in a magazine called Relevant Magazine, and the article is called The Outside Jesus. And I want to read a, just a portion of the, uh, the article for you this morning. It says, In today's church, we like the inside Jesus, a Messiah that feels at home in the warm shelter of the four-walled church, the Jesus of Sunday school classes, small groups, and deep dish potlucks. The only problem is that wasn't where the Jesus of the gospel stayed for very long. Instead, he was building a reputation, rubbing shoulders with the world, the world of the sexually immoral, the impoverished, and the suffering. To favor one side of Jesus' ministry is to neglect the other. To embrace an inside Jesus too closely is to let go of his outside mission. The world is desperate for the outside Jesus. And we need to find the outside Jesus again. Perhaps it's time for the church to become undomesticated. To go deep into the world and identify with the sinner, the poor, and the oppressed once again for the mission of Christ. You remember Mark Simonello? When we last saw Mark, Mark was in the park. Mark had gotten gypped out of his fight. I was in the safety of our home, trying to catch my breath. And that's when I heard my dad say, Son, it looked like that Simonello boy wanted to fight you. I didn't respond because clearly this was a rhetorical question. A few seconds later, I heard my dad say, Son, I want you to go outside and don't come back in until you fought him. (laughs) We all knew this day was coming. And clearly, this was the day that my dad had lost his ever-loving mind. (laughs) But even as a third grader, I had learned my dad's tones of voice. And I could tell from this particular tone that we were not having a conversation. And I could certainly tell from his tone that we were not having a negotiation. And reluctantly, I started making my way toward the screen door reluctantly across my front yard, across the street, out into the park to face Mark Simonello, the toughest kid in the neighborhood. Now, I need to step aside for a moment and just tell you, as I tell you the balance of this story, I am not condoning violence and fighting. I do not condone violence and fighting. This was a very different time and place and a very unique set of circumstances. And on this particular time and place and set of circumstances, I knew that I had no choice. What I remember is, as I'm making my way across, the kids in the neighborhood and in the park start to see me, and you can just sense the excitement level starting to rise, because they know they're getting ready to witness a fight. What I remember after that is is Mark and I squaring off on the infield of the baseball diamond. 
the kids completely surrounding us. It was hot, and from my perspective, there wasn't a lick of oxygen to breathe. Mark had been waiting for a fight long enough, and he wasted no time. He came at me with this great big overhand right haymaker, and I had enough adrenaline in my undersized third-grade body that I was able to duck out of the way. But Mark's momentum carried him onto and into me, and next thing I know, we both fall to the red clay of the infield. And in the blur of moments that followed, I remember I had Mark in a headlock, he had me in a headlock, and we were awkwardly trying to throw these rabbit punches at each other, and we're rolling back and forth in the infield trying to get leverage, and we did this for what seemed like an eternity, and then we got tired, and suddenly, it was over. The fight was just over. And we stood up, shirts all twisted around, and scratches here or there, and as the kids started to dissipate, I can remember my buddies coming up and they would punch me in the arm and they would give me that universal guy head nod. And I even remember catching Mark's eye across the way and Mark even looking at me and giving me the nod. We lived in that neighborhood for three years after that. And I will tell you, because of this one 15-minute event where my dad forced me out of the house, I would not be considered for that three years Tommy, the half-Japanese kid who eats weird food, lives on the corner and ran back home. Instead, I was known as Tommy the kid who left the safety of his house, chose to walk back across the street into the park and face Mark Simonello, the toughest kid in the neighborhood. All that said, I will tell you that as I was walking back out from my house to the park, I did not have a very high opinion of my dad. In fact, I didn't like my dad at all. But as I look back on it as an adult, I realize how infinitely harder it was for my dad to send his undersized third grader out that screen door than it ever was for me to go. And I realize that my dad had to have stood right behind that screen door watching every single second with his shoes laced up, hoping that he had made the right decision. You know, our father wants us to go out there too. But here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't want us to fight anybody. No, he sent his only son out ahead of us. And his son willingly and obediently came into our sinful, violent, broken world. And he took on the humiliation. He took on the insults. He took on the whipping, the beatings, And ultimately, he took on the brutal crucifixion so we wouldn't have to. My dad sent me out into the park because he knew my life would be significantly more difficult for me if I didn't get out there and face my fears. Our father wants us to go out there because he loves us, but because he desperately loves Mark Simonello too. And he knows that Mark comes from a broken and a dysfunctional home. We're being tough And fighting, and frankly getting beaten, are the only love languages that Mark has ever known. And our father wants us to go out there because he knows that it's not Mark's life in the neighborhood that's in the balance. No, it's Mark's eternal life that's in the balance. And our father wants us to go out there because he knows that the gospel that we have has and always will be the only answer for Mark and every single Mark out there. It's why Jesus boiled all of the commandments down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor, love your city, 
Love your mark, love your enemy, like you love yourself, like you love yourself. In Matthew chapter 28, it records the last thing that Jesus said to us before he left the world for 2,018 years. And just think about that for a moment. Jesus had, from the beginning of time, known that he was going to have this conversation. And so he had a lot of time to think about what he was going to say. So you would think that he was probably going to say something that he thought was pretty important. And what he said was, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you until the end of the age. So get this. What does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have the ability to be able to tell you to do anything I choose to tell you to do. I have all of the authority in the universe. And I've had since the beginning of time to think about what is it that I'm going to say. And with all that time and all that authority, what is it that Jesus tells us to do? Go. Get out of the house. That's what he tells us to do. So my question for you this morning is, how's the balance in your Christian life? If your life doesn't have that balance that Jesus showed us of a prayer life and a life that is committed to the community of the church and that missional life out into the city, I urge you to work on your balance. And if the piece that you struggle with is that missional part out, here's the coolest thing. The name of our series is What Moves You? And so that's a question, right? What moves us? So I know you're Presbyterian, and I know this is awkward, and I know we're in church, but I'm going to name some things, and if those are the things that move you, the things that you're passionate about, raise your hand for me, okay? College football. There's a quick hand back here. Boating and fishing. Travel. Music. Cooking. Eating. Forensic accounting. Yeah, I didn't think so. But check this out. Whatever it is that God put in you, He put it there. He made us, right? So He made us the way we are. He made us with the passions that we have. And He made me with passions that are different than His passions that are different from her passions. And why do you think that is? Do you think that was just random? I don't. Because I don't think God does random. He put all of this variety of passions in us because they match up with the variety of passions that are out there in our city. And so if stand-up paddleboarding is your thing, then get out there and stand up paddleboard. But do it intentionally. And do it in your city. And do it with the broken stand-up paddleboarders who need to see Jesus Christ in you. You know, we talked about how the church created compelling content. Compelling content has nothing to do with gift wrapping and bows and color. Compelling content is when we live a life in front of a bunch of broken stand-up paddleboarders and our life consistently shows them peace and patience and kindness and joy and mercy and justice and supernatural love that can only come from the Spirit. 
That's what compelling content looks like. That's what compelling content is. When we live a life that looks like Jesus Christ in front of a bunch of people who have a Jesus Christ-shaped hole in their life, that's what compelling content is. So I left you with one dangling question, and we'll close with this. How can the church be relevant and impactful and still stay true to the gospel? How can the church be relevant and impactful on our culture and on our society and our world and continue to be true to the gospel? Well, the church is going to be relevant and impactful when, one, when we realize that the city is not these buildings, it's not the business, it's not the schools, it's not the economy, it's not the beaches, it's not the restaurants, it's none of those things. The city are these people. And these people are international, they are beautiful, they are vibrant, and they are broken. And they are in desperate need of redemption, restoration, and Jesus. The church is going to be relevant and impactful again when, too, when we realize that this, this place, is not the church. But the church is you and the church is me. And when we realize that it's not only that we are the church, but we are to be the church, and we are to be Jesus, and we are to be the beautiful, redemptive gospel to our city. And lastly, the church is going to be relevant and impactful when we, through our prayer life and our life grounded here in the community of the church, become so Christ-like that we begin to see our city like Jesus sees our city. And when our hearts start to break for our city like his heart breaks for our city, and when we can't possibly stand it anymore, and we have to run out of our house through our screen door, and when we have to run across our front yard, and when we have to run across the street back out into our city in order to be the church to our city, in order to be Jesus to our city, in order to be the beautiful gospel to our city, and not because our Father tells us to, but because we love them. And we love them so much that there's no way we could stay inside. That's when the church becomes relevant. That's when the church becomes impactful. And let me tell you, that's the day when everything changes. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your son left the most beautiful home ever built and came into our world to fight the fight for us. And Father, we just pray that you would teach us how to see our city and have a heart for our city like you do. And Father, we just pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, and give us a love for our city that becomes what really moves us. We pray this in Jesus' name.